0: My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and I'm a professor in the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology in Daejeon, South Korea. I'm also the host of the podcast, COVID Calls. I'd like to welcome you to the 2021 Toronto International Festival of Authors. I'm the host today of the critical conversations session, Our Times Are Crisis. COVID, Climate and Disaster Management, featuring two wonderful expert guests whom we will hear from in a few moments, Catherine Brown and Laurian Farrell. When crisis becomes our everyday, what does our future look like? This is our question and this is our topic today, and we're going to have live discussion with the guests and then opportunity for Q&A session as well. So we welcome your engagement and involvement throughout the session. I'd like to remind you that the session also is proudly supported by Harriet Lewis and Eldon Bennett, as well as Andrew and Valerie Pringle. Let me take a moment now to introduce the panelists for this session. Catherine E. Brown is University Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Colorado State University. Since 2005 and the catastrophe of Hurricane Katrina, She's focused her research on historical disadvantage, cultural relevance, and social adaptation in the context of disaster recovery, risk reduction, and human resilience. In addition to her scholarly articles, Catherine Brown has published three books, produced two ethnographic films, and been awarded 12 National Science Foundation grants in the United States as principal investigator, received teaching awards, served as president of the Society for Economic Anthropology, and co-founded a scholarly journal, Economic Anthropology. Her work as a disaster anthropologist began in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in St. Bernard Parish, where for eight years she followed the lurching and painful recovery of a large African-American family. That work led to the documentary film, Still Waiting, Life After After Katrina, broadcast on PBS stations in the United States and Canada. After six more years of research, she published a book about the long-term effects of disaster on large African-American families, titled Standing in the need, culture, comfort, and coming home after Katrina. She also researched families affected by Hurricane Harvey in Southeast Texas. Brown co-founded and co-directs the Culture and Disaster Action Network, a network of academics and practitioners working to integrate cultural considerations into the way practitioners and disaster managers engage communities to achieve risk reduction, recovery, and resilience. In 2018, Brown was named the recipient of the Franz Boas Award, the highest award conferred by the American Anthropological Association, recognizing anthropologists whose careers demonstrate extraordinary achievements that have well served the anthropological profession. Let me introduce the second panelist, Lorian Farrell as well. Lorian Farrell has worked in the private, public and philanthropic sectors for 20 years. Her work has focused on the confluence between engineering science, policy, and the public to address environmental, social, and economic challenges in cities. As director of the North American Environmental Risk Management at the Global Resilient Cities Network, Lorien strategizes with chief resilience officers and their executive leadership teams to implement tangible and impactful solutions that realize the vision of equitable and resilient cities. In 2019, Lorien joined 100 Resilient Cities. is contributing to the evolution of the resilience movement through her role. Prior to that, she applied her training in water resources engineering and landscape architecture to programs in Canada, where she's from. She developed the city of Brampton's programs for stormwater management, flood mitigation, and environmental master planning, including the implementation of climate change mitigation and adaptation actions for land, water, air, waste, energy, and people. Lorianne, Also, project managed the city's Game Changer, Riverwalk Initiative, a flood protection and downtown revitalization project. Toronto and Region Conservation Authority, Lorian modernized and executed a new program for flood risk management and infrastructure. This included management of a 24-hour flood forecasting and warning team, climate strategy development and adaptation planning, and asset management of flood control infrastructure. Just a reminder, I'm Scott Knowles. And I'm also the host of the daily podcast, COVID Calls. So let's get to the discussion. And I want to once again, um, welcome Catherine Brown and Lorian Farrell. It's good to see you both.
1: Thank Thank you, Scott. Scott.
0: So I thought it would be good. I mean, we don't have a lot of time here today. and We have so many topics on the table. So I want to start actually... Instead of taking on the whole world in one bite, I thought it might be good to start um, by hearing a little bit more about your specific work. Uh, And with that in mind, I'm wondering if each of you could maybe tell us a very specific story from your research that you think captures and maybe explains the challenges in understanding and taking action against disaster and climate change. I mean, there's just such big topics. I feel like maybe we need to start. Um, with your very specific work on these. So, Lorian, let me start with you on that.
1: Sure, definitely, Scott. Thanks for the question. Um, I I think I'm going to draw back on my experience working in Toronto with the Toronto Region Conservation Authority. Um, And the the Conservation Authority story in Toronto, I think is one of of forward thinking. Um, And also what happens when you don't have a disaster every day to a great idea. and, and how that manifests itself as a lack of action for emergency management and, and climate readiness. So let me give you a little bit of context about conservation authorities for those who don't know. Um, in 1954, the Ontario, the province of Ontario experienced the greatest storm on record, Hurricane Hazel, and over 80 people lost their lives. And the government at the time, the, the provincial government recognized that Floods don't follow political boundaries. They couldn't leave the solutions to cities alone. And so they developed conservation authorities. Well, they were already developed on, on a watershed basis for, for forestry conservation, but they gave the conservation authorities the mandate to also manage the floodplains, um, which was really a huge shift in the way we had managed landscapes and risks in the province. And... Um, And, you know, I've traveled the world going to different conferences about uh, water resources and risk management, and I've always come back to Ontario being so proud of this vision that uh, people had over 70 years ago to protect our watersheds and to protect people. Now, one of the issues is that, and when we talk about um, why is it hard to um, have people take action when it comes to preparedness, well, we haven't had a flood like Hazel since 1954. We came really, really close in 2012 when New York experienced Hurricane Sandy, but the storm was tracking toward Toronto and then a few hours, maybe six hours before, it took a one degree turn and, and bypassed us. So we did we would have had a major incident. Um but what happens is that we uh we were responsible for developing sort permitting development within the floodplain. And the policies in Ontario are very strict. You're actually not allowed to develop in the floodplain, which is very different. Um procedures than we have here where I'm now living in the United States. I, a lot of people don't like that. They want to be able to live onto a valley. They want to be able to, large developers want to be able to use land that's underutilized in their opinion to, for economic gain and create communities. But, you know, the Conservation Authority has really sound um, policies and legislation that allows them to permit. So people think that they're too conservative. Um, that they're unfair. Why can't they just do a little bit of filling in the floodplain? And they don't really understand necessarily the, the incremental effects of taking away a little bit of floodplain, a little bit of floodplain, and what that um, impact will be on their neighbours, people who live upstream and downstream of them. And so it's really difficult as a, as a practitioner in an office sitting across from someone who's trying to build their dream home to tell them, to explain to them in this hour that you have together, the full technical reasons why they can't do it, the political reasons and the policy reasons. Um, But then there are other problems, other challenges as well with um, keeping people right that um, they don't necessarily understand. Um, So I I mentioned how people have never really, a lot of people have never experienced that type of flooding. Um, Also the, the, the people managing the floodplains themselves, myself included, we don't always get the answers right. We are also our knowledge is always evolving, and so what was a policy five years ago maybe may change, and people don't understand why we're changing things, and and they don't really understand the dynamic nature of the science, um, the evolution of our understanding, and so there's not as much trust as we would like, um, because they see that as a weakness, as a failure on our parts. Um, a couple of other things that we we found I found challenging in my work. as as a hands-on practitioner trying to um, limit the risk to life and property through flooding. City budgets are usually uh, tied to councillor terms, and so the work that we're trying to do takes sometimes a decade to implement large-scale flood management schemes. Um, Budgets are really only good for about four years, and we know that budgets are moral documents. We need to put the money behind the programming so that we can um, <clears throat> practice the implementation, the, the mitigation that we need to, and then, <coughs> pardon me, I would say finally, <coughs> one of the problems um, from a policy perspective, I might have to ask Kate to take over, but I'll try. <laughs> <coughs> one sec, is that um, we actually don't have we're still working in silos. And so we're not uh, connecting enough of our departments that our work needs to be more integrated so that we can make sure that we're spending every dollar as wisely as we can, that we're, that we're coordinating our efforts, and that every sin- single decision that gets made gets us closer collectively to the resilience that we need to have in our cities. And I'll leave it there, Scott. Um, I'm sure we can come back to talking about these points more.
0: Sure. L- Lorian, thank you this is so much in that. I mean, I'm particularly impressed with your the scenario you described of having to explain to people why you can't build in the floodplain. And, <laughs> it's something, and something that seems so obvious when we're used to seeing, you know, if you see images of flooded places, but most of the time, most of these floodplains are, are not like that. And so people, it's people's own everyday experience of a place that, you know, really shapes whether or not they see risk or not. And then your particular role, your job is to sort of like be the risk translator when times are good, so that their house is not there when times are bad. Um, we'll come. I'm sure we'll come back to that. Kate, um, same question to you. Take us inside, on a granular level, your own work.
2: I just want to say that was fascinating, Lorian, and and <clears throat> it really points up the complexity of trying to bridge across the academic world and the practitioner world. When the practitioner world, as you just described, is so complex already, and you've got all kinds of conflict and and work to try to resolve these uh, these gaps um, already in the first place. And so, um, my work is is as a, an anthropologist and researcher. And I want to take you inside the uh, post Katrina scenario where um, I was introduced mm-hmm. to disaster work and some of the things that some of the big ideas that come out of this small story include the concept of climate change, because it was clearly um, climate change that accelerated the, the storm and made it much worse than it needed to be. Fossil fuel industry has, has degraded the buffer zone, and that's a, a really important point to, to take hold of that I may not explicitly address. Um, lot lot and increase in danger with climate change and decrease in protection with the The degradation of the buffer zone in the wetlands. And then there are a host of other things that are very social in nature, like the lack of local knowledge, the lack of trust of and by local communities, and then um, the the sense of agency, the lack of people's ability to make their own decisions for themselves, and ultimately, the corrosive impact of all that on health, on people's well-being. So this is a really condensed version of uh, the book I wrote about this. But it's a large African-American family we found in Dallas. The filmmaker and I got um, uh, were working to document exactly what happened. This whole family of 155 people, all relatives, um, left the bayou the day before Katrina, evacuated together to Dallas, where they had a relative who took care of them. And the day after they arrived, which was the day before Katrina, uh, they learned they'd lost everything in their homes. So. It was quite traumatic. They realized they were going to be staying there for months. And Connie, the relative they had gone to, uh, was someone who helped them in all kinds of big and small ways, finding housing, supplies, appliances, doctors, medication, eyeglasses, dialysis centers, everything they needed um, and had not brought because they didn't expect to be in this circumstance. The filmmaker and I documented the kind of daily interactions, and once a week we noted that people this huge group would gather at connie's house because she had a huge backyard and they would cook and they would eat crab and shrimp and all kinds of uh, new orleans food gumbo they would uh, share stories they would share updates they would fill out paperwork um, that connie helped direct them to do to get a fema trailer connie effectively served as a culture broker and that's a theme i'll come back to later when it came time to go back home, and this was a trickle, not a not a, a mass return because people had to have a trailer to go back to, they went back home and they experienced a whole variety of problems where before in Dallas, they had gathered weekly, imitating in a kind of shadow-like way their lives before Katrina where they had gathered and depended on each other in this large, really single family. They considered themselves family, not branches, not individual households that came together, but one family, which made it, of course, very difficult to fill out the paperwork in that FEMA appropriate way. So when they got back to the Bayou, they were very um, much alone. There was no Connie, there was no culture broker. There were all kinds of problems um, that, that, Occurred because they were they had no cushion. Their cushion was an adaptation over the very long term to uh, to life with racism, extreme racism on the outside of of their society in, in uh, Saint Bernard Parish. The way they coped with that and their relatives and ancestors coped with that was to build a kind of group. Of uh, connectedness and strength, where people would share resources, skills, knowledge, um, all kinds of things, childcare. But that social network, which was very dense and is considered, you know, the strong sort of connections among people who study these things, fell apart because everybody was in crisis. Everybody had lost everything. And so they couldn't depend on each other. This was the first time in all the generations that they talked to me about that that their social network had collapsed and not been there for them. So where before they had had a financial cushion, this time they had not only not a financial cushion, they had no social cushion either to to, um, to kind of mitigate those financial needs and other kinds of needs. And um, there were just uh, there was an immeasurable sort of stress that that placed on them because they couldn't jump on the, the attempt to get rebuilding. They were forced to wait for checks because they had no savings, no 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 cushion in that sense. In that process, uh, paperwork got lost. Katie, one of the one of the four sisters who kind of led this group, that all had. Uh, children and grandchildren and some had great-grandchildren. She had a prosthetic leg and and had always used it to appear to walk normally, but she tripped going up the aluminum steps of her trailer when when it was not an ADA trailer, a a disability-compliant trailer, and she was no longer able to walk after that. She spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair. The case agents were never the same. They had to repeat stories over and over to different people. There was displacement among everybody in the family um, who had to live in these small trailers. So they couldn't gather. They had no way to reconstruct, to revive their their adaptation for dealing with crisis. So they really experienced kind of a a sense of no light at the end of the tunnel. And by year three, I started documenting chronic health problems, um, heart conditions, hypertension, strokes, chronic headaches, um, all variety of things. And this was the, um, this is the story. Ultimately, after three years, they did get their check. They were very different in amount, even though they were similarly. So this really takes you back to recognize that the lack of no- local knowledge was profoundly uh, deleterious to their well-being, and it caused the undermining of their cultural system that was the source of their resilience, which which was... It's just heartbreaking to see. There was no trust. There was um, no sense of agency. They were not driving the the recovery process or even allowed to participate meaningfully. And that had impacts on health. So um, that's, my, that's my short story. Um, and there's much more to say about it, but you can also see how the climate change and environmental degradation of coastal areas was a part of this. And then Life Without a Cushion is another big takeaway. All of those are factors that converge in this one story um, that have a lot to say about how people live at risk in ways that are really invisible to most of us. Unless you were out there doing the research um, month after month, year after year, you wouldn't know any of this because it's not something that uh, people see, it's not what journalists cover in the media. So this is the kind of information we need to know to understand why disasters are um, are, are so d- devastating to people.
0: Well, thank you for that, Catherine. I'm, and I'm really glad we started this way because, I mean, we've now got two specific North American places, but two specific and different places in, in the world. And if you bring New York City into that, we've got three, um, you know, talking about not only physical infrastructure, and policy infrastructure, um, as Lorian was introducing, but also social infrastructure, uh, as you're talking about there, Catherine. And and there's one other thing I just want to put a a pin in this, and maybe we'll return to it later as well, is about passage of time. And so, you know, there's different timescales for disaster. There's sort of policy timescales, there's emergency management timescales. But, you know, Catherine, what you were just describing there, and in your own work, you know, following over a longer interval of time, yeah, that the disaster doesn't end when the relief check clears, hmm. if the relief check ever comes. Um, that might be a sort of policy-minded uh, uh, or social welfare-minded definition of what a disaster is, not to say it's not important, but from a victim's perspective, a survivor's perspective, it could be a lifetime. It could be intergenerational. And I think bringing that into our thinking about disaster, to me, is 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 really crucial. Um, and I don't think you don't get it that unless you get down into the granularity of people's lives and stories and, and about the land itself and the laws that regulate it. I think we should turn and talk a little bit about COVID. I mean, we're talking about um, hurricanes there in the, in the first round of questions. And um, Catherine, I'm going to mm-hmm. stay with you on this and then Laurie and come to you um, second. But thinking about COVID and, and disaster as a as a revealer you know disaster as a as a process that doesn't so just happen to us from outside but actually reveals vulnerability in society. Catherine, I wonder what you think about that and maybe at at, at different scales too. I mean we you were just talking about, you know, individual people, the local community scale, but also covid is is a national scale issue and it's in my lifetime, the first disaster that we've seen that actually is affecting people simultaneously on every continent. So I wonder if you would sort of engage with that question about what COVID reveals in terms of our vulnerabilities.
2: Yeah, sure. I I think that one of the most important things that distinguishes like what we we say disasters are uh, fault lines. And I think that's true. But what is distinctive about COVID is that it is a global phenomenon. It is a, a community by community, rural, urban, exurban, all kinds of areas. There aren't any areas that are not impacted by COVID. So that means that what we are allowed to see, that the nature of the exposure to our social problems is quite dramatic. And it's occurring simultaneously all over the world. And you know, in our society alone, I would say we have seen the, the revelation that our safety net is full of holes. And that's true in a lot of places. Um, it's just impossible to ignore that now, where you could say Katrina revealed the fault lines of, of race, which it did, um, and income inequities the fault lines of COVID uh, are are the convergence of all of these crises, uh, both the likelihood of of being exposed or the possibility of being exposed to something that could cause death, um, the possibility of the systemic racism that is impacting people all over the place that we're just kind of getting to know about. I mean, I think that Although anthropologists are well aware of this and have written about it in many ways for, uh, for, for decades, it's not something that the average person is aware of. And now we are much more aware of. so um, And climate disasters, where we're starting to see people converging um, in, in places that uh, are, are safer or you know, having to relocate, having to think about moving your life, even if you've been there for generations. This is traumatic and we don't have systems in place to deal with those kinds of things. So so COVID is introducing a convergence of, of multiple disasters that are sitting on top of each other. And we're seeing all these fault lines at the same time. Um, I mean, our our medical system, for example, is undergoing the stress test of a lifetime. We're seeing here and in other countries, the system strained to the point of collapse, but especially here in the US where we have uh, no excuse as a, as an extremely wealthy nation relative to other countries. We've had to build tents in, in soccer fields to handle the sick. I mean, we are experiencing extreme stress on the healthcare workers who, you know, some have lost their lives. Many, many thousands have been, uh, affected by COVID itself, have gotten COVID. Um, I, when we were, dealing with HIV patients, we only lost a hundred healthcare workers. And we're talking about thousands and thousands of healthcare workers who've gotten COVID and uh, many of them have died. And that number keeps growing and there's just no reserve. Our hospitals are woefully understaffed. Some people are so much in despair that they're committing suicide or leaving the profession altogether, which is creating more problems. And then, in addition, you know, in some ways, the, the the whole world seems like it's cracking open, because disproportionate numbers of people are are who are what we call vulnerable, which is probably a bad choice of words, are experiencing the impact of COVID because they have already weakened immune systems. They have comorbidities. They may have diabetes or hypertension or heart disease, or any number of comorbidity uh, problem, healthcare problems, that make them extra uh, susceptible to COVID and to the serious versions of COVID and to death. And we see that in our country and in other countries, that it is people of color who are most likely to be disproportionately impacted. We have very good data about this, and it's just a It's a toxic storm of severe illness and death. And, um, we also know that these problems have been around a long time and we need to deal with those because people are, um, people who are what we call BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color are all uh, living sicker and dying younger than the rest of us. And that's wrong. Um, I think we have just blind to that, but cope, uh, just Sheared off the the blinders, and we cannot ignore these problems. It's also true that the elderly and infirm are who are residents of nursing homes have have had an especially high vulnerability for getting COVID. Um, I think the fault line here is much bigger than just individual cases or these these environments. We are actively accepting how we care for our old and incapacitated and that is something that's a result of our of many things our priority on individual fulfillment and upward mobility and and geographic mobility required to meet those kinds of of uh desires and and it's also the case that these are private businesses with the overwhelming majority of these kinds of long-term care facilities and they are they are required to make a profit. So we've seen all kinds of cost cutting measures that translate into a short supply of of medical staff. Um, This is a moral issue. There are people at meat processing plants. That's another fault line. And then all variety of frontline workers who we now call essential. We we call them essential and yet, you know, grocery workers are very poorly paid and yet they're right there on the front lines. People in delivery services, first responders, Um, so there are people who uh, are exposed to these fault lines and who suffer disproportionately because of them. And and I think the takeaway from all this is that these are systems we have put in place and that we can change. There's nothing inevitable about them. We have had the opportunity through COVID to bear witness to the disproportionate burdens in life and how a, a, a terrible storm or a tornado can produce unthinkable burdens on some people in our population who we have truncated their capacity to thrive and like any ecosystem you have to have all, all parts of the ecosystem thriving in order for anything related to the system itself to thrive so i think you know if if we want to talk about the cultural values that support these kinds of Outcomes, we can do that. There's certainly plenty to talk about from an anthropological standpoint, but I will, I will stop there.
0: Uh, Lauren, let me give you a, a chance to either, you know, react to anything that Catherine has said and, and give you an opportunity to comment on this same question about what COVID has revealed. And I think there's something that particular what Catherine has said, too, which really strikes me is that the overlaps with the environmental justice movement um, are pretty important here. You know that COVID is is not you know sweet generis. I mean, it's not its own thing. It's also exposing vulnerabilities that compound disasters, which are long in the making, and maybe that taps into your work with 100 resilient cities.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, Scott. Um, so, Catherine, you said so many things that I want to touch on. Um, the first was when you talked about how the whole world is cracking open, and I just imagined those fissures. Um, which we used to think about as over there. Now people sitting in their homes and watching those cracks that like, come into their yard. And that's how it felt for a lot of people that, um, the problem is here now and we can no longer really ignore it. Um, and you know, as much as we want to say we didn't know that there were inequities, you know, we, we tiptoed around inequities a lot. Um, and now, especially in, in my own, I'll talk to my, on my own practice, I, can no longer afford to tiptoe, tip-toe around subjects like that or worry about if I'm offending my colleagues. Um, you know, I have to amplify and accelerate the work that we're doing, um, toward dismantling the inequities in our systems because we understand now that without addressing the inequities in our systems, we will never be resilient. Um, and even those who might have a higher level of resilience than the disinvested, the, the, the poor and the vulnerable, for lack of a better word, they'll they won't be resilient either unless all of society, the whole of society, is resilient. Um, so the work that I do today at the Resilient Cities Network, I, I have the privilege of working with um, in this network, which is a global organization. A hundred cities around the world. There are twenty four cities in the United States and four in Canada and that I manage in the in the North America region, um, and. What I saw, in addition to all of the points that Catherine mentioned, what I saw from a city perspective, which I found su- surprising, although I, you know in retrospect I shouldn't have found it surprising, was how vulnerable cities as a system are. Um, how how precariously perched a lot of our systems are, a lot of our budgets. At the beginning of the pandemic, um, you know we we started to feel the the major effects of the pandemic around march 20 2020 20, 20, no 20, 2020 yes <laughs> and our time is is already in my mind now too um by may june cities were worried about how they were going to keep lights on in in their facilities so it wasn't just a matter of how are we going to adapt our programs. It was really, how are we going to stay in business, just like every other business um, that was worried about the economic downturn? So a lot of cities' uh, programs had to stop, and so they weren't generating revenue um, that they were used to, to generating. Um, and, and so they're fragile, there are large engines of industry, there are services that cities provide that are essential, and they need to keep going. Um, and services that support the, the social cohesion, the fabric, the interconnectedness that Catherine spoke about, that the family in New Orleans lost, right? Um, cities have a role to play in supporting residents and communities to an, to an extent, and they couldn't perform a lot of those services anymore, um, compounding the, the negative impacts of COVID and the lack of social cohesion. Um, and another thing that I witnessed over the course of the last year, and it's easing up a little bit now, um, was a serious stress on employees and mental health issues. Um, you know, we were called upon in cities to perform at the same time as, uh, employees were and their own families were experiencing the pandemic just with it along with everybody else. And so this is, this is different, you know, when you have such a far reaching, um, Disruption, shock and and shock compounded by underlying stresses in society where you can no longer really rely on mutual aid. So cities are set up to, you know, if you have an emergency management system in Toronto and your, your fire services are taxed by a certain event, you can call Kitchener or you can call Ottawa or whoever you need to call. To bring in more resources and you share those resources when in a time of need. Well, there was no way, there was nobody to call during the pandemic. Everybody was experiencing the same thing. <coughs> Cities who are used or employees who are used to um, serving the public. Um, that was, it was very hard for them, um, psychologically, stressful, mentally to not be able to help. Um, and also while still trying to help their own families and keep themselves safe at the same time. So I don't think those are things that we often think about. I think the, the public, for the most part, thinks about um, civil servants as, you know, that's just a given. You will always have, you can always call 911 and pick up the phone and someone will call. Um, but there's a couple of great examples that I'll share with you. Um, one is that the, the city of Miami Beach, you know, to give you an example of what employees we're dealing with, what s- staff we're dealing with, um, I was told by one of by our chief resilience officer in that city that one of her colleagues was going to Costco every morning before they opened, and the store would open early for that city employee, and she would go with her corporate credit card and load up baskets of food so that they could start, you know, food banks. Um, this was not anywhere in that that employee's job description. Um, she did it for way longer than emotionally or physically was healthy, but she kept doing it and they had no plans to stop until they, people in the community could, could um, didn't need that service anymore. And a lot of employees were furloughed because of the cash um, restraints on cities. And I don't think people necessarily knew that as well, that they had their own financial problems as well as you no know, problems being able to serve. <clears throat> and of course, we, we've all heard stories about how frontline workers um, were hit very hard during the pandemic and fell ill. Transit, uh, transit workers were particularly hard hit. <coughs> people working in shelters. Um, in El Paso, our chief resilience officer there knew from work that she had undertaken in building their resilience strategy that she understood their homeless population and the, the needs of the homeless people and really immediately understood at the beginning of the pandemic, that there would be no way to provide the appropriate supports given, with their given um, systems. So she was able to stand up a 1,000-bed shelter for homeless, the homeless population. Uh, she knew that the homeless population was less than 800. That shelter became <clears throat> overcapacity very quickly because people who had never been part of the homeless shelter system before who lost their jobs because of the pandemic Suddenly, we're also homeless, and so while they had a plan in place for the people they knew about with a little bit of buffer, um, it worked out really well that they had extra capacity. But they could have used even more um, because of the unforeseen sort of needs that were that were coming forward <clears throat> um, on a global level. I think, um, as I said, you know, nothing is happening over there anymore. Everything is happening. We are also connected. We're connected digitally. We're connected uh, physically. Uh, it's so easy to move around. Um, and so there are quite a few examples from around the network, uh, that I'll share with you of, of where we saw some vulnerabilities, like tangible vulnerabilities that needed to be addressed quickly. We couldn't just say, oh, well. Um, <clears throat> but first I'll tell you that, uh, in terms of interconnectedness, one thing that really came to light during the pandemic was how, um, the issues that we, that we see Speaking to the United States in particular now, but the, the civil after the murder, murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, uh, we saw worldwide. But when we saw, um, issues of, of inequities or anti-Black racism coming, popping up in cities outside of Minneapolis or any city, uh, where it used to be well, oh, that city is dealing with that. Let's keep an eye and see how we can help. Civil unrest in one city resulted in civil unrest in every city. And so it's no, you could no longer prepare For what was going to happen with you, you had to keep an eye on everything else around you and be ready for that as well. And the cost of dealing with a a response that cities had to deal with is not sustainable. So the only answer is to address the inequities, right? Um, And so inequities happen in all corners of the globe and show up in many different ways. Um, One example of an issue that came to light in Pune in India was with their waste pickers um, so many many people make their living picking waste and the city quickly understood that they could not continue to um, have their livelihood if the city didn't support them with um, education training and protective protective equipment um, and so that was one of the activities that the city undertook very quickly in Lagos the issue of informal settlements came up. People, people in informal settlements couldn't stay home and social distance because they had to be out working so that they could get food. So the choice was risk uh, getting COVID or risk um, famine. And so, um, awareness, um, having, making sure again, education and providing the support that the community needed was top of mind. For the Lagos uh, city officials, but also ensuring that people had access to food um, in Oakland, the the city did a very interesting thing. I think that um, they understood they needed to have a response that was equitable, and they actually embedded the chief resilience officer into the emergency res- um, emergency management office. And so, you know, emergency management offices are usually very structured, and there's specific roles that people. Um, enact during an emergency, and so this was new. There were never, there had never been a CRO, Chief Resilience Officer, in that space before. And what the Chief Resilience Officer does in a city is they have the sort of overview of all of the departments, all of the activities, and look for those interconnections between the departments, um, so that they can find co-benefits and so they can um, accelerate and amplify um, resilience within the, within the city. And so I thought that was really a, a great model and a, a number of other cities are investigating and taking up that sort of activity as well. And finally, I'll just say um, another great in, um, void that the pandemic brought to bear was the, the digital divide and cities that were able to provide digital access to more of their residents, especially students, young students, um, and to use digital mechanisms for communicating with the residents fared a lot better than those those um, that didn't have good access for the residents. And so, really, the haves and the have-nots came to very, very quickly during the pandemic as well. Um, oh, There's so much more I could say. Um, issues with domestic violence, issues with the, the supply chains, food in particular, the vulnerabilities in our systems, New York City's Uh, You wouldn't imagine a city to be vulnerable like New York, but there's some incredible uh, vulnerabilities. A lot of these things we knew before, but um, just like with Hurricane Hazel in Ontario, people, you know, it's not going to happen. And so although there are really good plans in place, getting those plans to be um, executable is a challenge. And so, Scott, I'll turn it back to you.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Laurie, and I just want to remind everybody who's watching that you're participating in the 2021 Toronto International Festival of Authors. And the session is Our Times, Our Crisis, COVID Climate and Disaster Management. And been talking tonight. I'm I'm Scott Knowles. I'm the host of uh, COVID Calls and a history professor at KAIST in South Korea. And we've been talking with Catherine Brown and Laurie Ann Farrell on really big questions. But again, I'm impressed with the ways that you both, and, and I think this is the kind of disaster analysis we, we always need. So I'm really enjoying hearing from both of you that we need to be able to move across scales. So we need to be able to talk about very local places, but also connect those, um, as you said, uh, Laurie, and I thought quite, quite powerfully that um, a social justice movement in Minneapolis is not something anymore that um, just happens in Minneapolis. And that's, I think that's Positive. I mean, that's good. I mean, that I mean, you know, an awareness, something that spreads awareness of the vulnerabilities in most places or all places um, is maybe I mean, it's hard to look for silver linings, I guess, in COVID. But I think to me, that moment was such a powerful one because it seemed like, well, this might just be another case where this just happens in this one space. But it caught that moment with COVID as well. And it became a global movement. Uh, I thought that was really powerful. So again, thinking across these scales to me is, is is really crucial. We have some questions. I want to remind viewers you can get, we've got about 15 minutes left. You can get questions into the discussion, just put them into the chat. We've had a couple come in and I didn't manage it this way or predict it this way, but they actually um, are exactly what I wanted to talk about next. So I'm just going to read the questions that have come in and, and direct them to you. One was if a large scale... Disaster like COVID isn't enough to make us address these fault lines, which we've been discussing. What will, uh, how, what kind of change? What what will change? How we approach these issues? So, in other words, we've seen everything we need to see. Now, what do we do next? The second question, um, similar, is and thanks to viewers for these questions. If you had just one action to recommend to viewers tonight to help address these issues, what would it be? And so, I mean, I think this comes to to Lorian's provocation that we need to dismantle the inequities, and but we don't just do that because we say so. It oh, involves so. accountability in different spheres, governance, policy making, both private and public sector. Both of you are experts in knowing um, what the structures are that exist that make disasters possible and make them worse. So. What are you doing? What can we do? Let's talk about specific things. And Catherine, let me come to you first on that. You know, one or two very specific suggestions, things you'd like to see change that would have made Katrina not as bad, the next COVID not as terrible.
2: <laughs> um, right. And so what we want to try to do is f- figure out how to do not just understand that there are systems and structures that perpetuate bias and inequality in the distribution of goods like healthcare and educational access and access to decent housing and these things, um, but to, to actually move on that front in a sustainable way. And my idea is one that I've worked with my group, Caden, the Culture and Disaster Action Network, um, and we have produced reports for FEMA, including one that we published in 2019 called "Building Cultures of Preparedness," and one that is has just been published um, and is, uh, is 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 just this week out called "Vaccine Hesitancy uh, and Approach to Action: An Anthropological Study." Um, both of these engage with these problems in a way that I think offers some real hope and basically it revolves around the concept of trust because what is missing in these communities that have been systematically discriminated against for generations um, that we don't acknowledge but that enough of the research communities and enough of the practitioners like Lorian and others recognize are real. I got asked by FEMA to talk about diversity back um, about a year ago. That was incredible. They are recognizing something has to change. And I think that the trust issue is at the heart of the problem and the solution. So I would say that trust it does not exist right now between communities of color, largely, and institutions of our government. We see this in patterns of vaccine hesitancy, which are not at all Unique or new information to anthropologists or, or social researchers. Um, but what is important is that the trust that we proceed with or that we generate comes from a recognition that people have to be heard. They have to be, we have to understand how they feel. We have to recognize what they are already doing what they need and what they want and how they can participate in programs to um, to to build to mitigate risk to recover from a disaster and the trust that can be built I in working with my Caden group we believe can be situated around the concept of a culture broker which is what was my revelation through the Katrina research. Connie in Dallas served as that person who was a member of that family, but she moved away. So people who are embedded in local communities, not FEMA people who we train, (laughs) that's not going to work because they don't look or sound like the people Mm -hmm. in the community. So culture brokers, I think, have an immense potential. Facilitate the kinds of conversation and generate the kinds of trust that is just waiting for us, is waiting to be tapped. People want to be heard. People will communicate if they feel like there is a trusted messenger on the other end of the communication, and if the message itself shows respect and knowledge about who they are and what they need. So that's a short answer, which I can go into a lot more detail, but Uh, That's what we've been proposing to FEMA and this latest vaccine hesitancy project was a a pilot test of that methodology, which was very successful and helped us move into communities that are prison communities, um, homeless shelters and low income uh, communities in general in an extraordinarily short time by working with local people who we gain the trust of because they understand that we understand the social and environmental injustice that has plagued their lives and their communities.
0: Catherine, I mean, Lauren, I want to get your answer too. I think it's, that's a really, to me, um, important suggestion. It also shows some of the problems of doing this work because trust is very hard to um, quantify. And so, you know, if you're talking about an intervention in a social system, uh, which I think you've amply demonstrated is absolutely crucial and necessary, and probably at the heart of a lot of the failures of government in disaster. Um, but that's it's that's a big challenge to that. You know, we go to a policymaker and say, let's have a well, let's rebuild trust, um, and they say, okay, well, what's the what's your what are your numbers on trust? Where are we on trust? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. That's you know, it's very hard to do that, and so you ha- there has to be other way, the other modes of evidence that come to play here, which I think you're expert at. And those maybe have to do with the kinds of things you've done, like make films, put victims front and center, put the narrative front and center. I and mean, mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, the, the, our setting for our discussion right now really speaks to that. The power of words, the power of testimony, the power of solidarity that comes through through those kind of pieces of evidence. Laurie, same question to you. I mean, you know, specific kind of interventions, you probably get asked this question a thousand times every day, but I, I really still want to know, like, what tool are you picking up first
1: Uh, look um catherine catherine's hit the nail on the head it's trust i don't know how to implement it following up on what you said but here's what i know when i was working in a city i could not point to very many people who in my colleagues who trusted the public it was very difficult to do our work um because we all felt attacked right and it's the environment that we, the, the system that we built, which is city city government. Um, <clears throat> you know, you've got to answer to the councilors who are answering to their constituents. You're trying to do your technical work. You're 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 under pressure. It's hard. And so to have um, public coming in complaining, complaining was hard. And being very, very super honest, um, I would always want to help the public, but I didn't know how. I wasn't given the authority, the autonomy, the tools to do what I what I actually could would want to do, right? Because you're you're in these boxes. You have to do your work. Very hard to break through silos. But I heard a woman working in the city of Calgary when I started working in resilience say something that really changed me. And she said, we need to... Because we would always say, how do we get the public to start trusting us to do our jobs? And she said, how do we start trusting the public? And I think if, if people like Catherine could help us, the practitioners, figure out a new way to flip the script and do our work that invites the public in, but also, you know, in terms of what can you do as the public in a tangible way, like come in, um, we would have tons of open houses and nobody would show up. I know why, because we were asking the wrong questions all the time and we were doing them in the wrong venues. But if we can change the questions and change the venues, we need you to come to and be there with us as we create these solutions, because the solutions are going to be local. The solutions that are resilient aren't going to be created in offices in Manhattan. They're going to be at the local level. So we need to learn to get out there and ask the questions or gather the information in the right way, um, in the right places, and then translate that into flood mitigation or whatever it is that we need, we're trying to solve for. Um, but yeah, I think, and, and I would say the voices, everybody's voice matters. So what you can do to make sure that we get, we do better the next time is tell us what happened and what you need and then and vote because we need people in power. Who will shift policies uh, because the way we have done things for the last, you know, few hundred years has to, has to evolve now, right? We have a new reality, new society, new systems need to be in place.
0: I am going to add one thing onto that, which has really um, come home to me with uh, COVID. And I want to point to the work of scholars like Jackie Vernamont, who's at Dartmouth or Robert Soden, who's, who's there at Toronto, who spent a lot of time thinking about quantification and disaster. And yeah, you know, there are now hundreds of thousands of children around the world who've lost a parent to COVID. And there's millions of people around the world who are suffering from long COVID. Our ways of talking about when we quantify, even our quantification is incomplete. Yeah. And so I think we additionally need to really take a hard look at the, you know, dollars and death counts are not cutting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not gonna capture what's happened, didn't happen what happened capture what happened with Katrina, what's happening with climate change, <clears throat> or what will happen with COVID. So I think that's a, a pretty, very specific intervention that can happen in the way that public health statistics are um, tabulated in the way that disaster financial statistics are tabulated. Um, we are we have two minutes left, and I want to – so we're going to have like a lightning quick round here, give each of you just 30 seconds, um, uh, 30 seconds to, to a minute here. You do this work every day. You're enmeshed in disaster. You're the people that we call on when the worst things happen. What gives you the hope? To keep doing this work, Lorian.
1: I think I'm just a, I'm a positive person inherently, but I think what really gives me hope is um, the chief resilience officers in the network and beyond, because they're in many cities. Um, they're dedicated, and when they start talking to each other, they fuel each other's ideas, and it's really incredible to see what they're working on. The you know the changes in the way cities are thinking about providing services. Um, in the face of climate change, in the face of pandemic, in the face of inequities, you know, there were really smart people working on these things in cities. Um, so I'm hopeful that they'll break through some of the colonialism systems that we're kind of trapped under right now, um, and, and get to some really making great impact so that the society as a whole becomes more resilient.
0: Catherine, same question to you. Quick, yeah. quick answer. I, I I like that a lot. My
2: primary motivation is to reduce suffering. And what I witnessed after Katrina was that people were hurt by bad systems. And so Caden is that group that is working to connect scholars and practitioners. And we've seen that FEMA is actually very responsive. And that's a hopeful sign. Uh, They want to understand. They want to do better. They want to be on a cutting edge, which they have not historically been at all. Um, so I think that there are um, hopeful signs that, th- that some of the institutions we're working with are changing and recognizing the desperate need for, uh, for, for truly systemic change.
0: Just reminding everyone, um, you've been participating in the 2021 Toronto International Festival of Authors and the session, Our Times are Crisis, COVID Climate and Disaster Management. Uh, Books by our two uh, authors and presenters today, Catherine Brown and Lorian Farrell, uh, are available at the University of Toronto bookstore and also on the festival website. And of course, you can check out their own work uh, on the web. They both have a lot of uh, materials about their work. You can find them, um, go and and look for them, Catherine Brown and Lorian Farrell. Also, a reminder that the festival is proudly supported by Harriet Lewis and Eldon Bennett, as well as Andrew Valerie Pringle. And I'm Scott Gabriel Knowles. And again, I just want to thank Catherine Brown and Lorian Farrell for the work you're doing and for the time that you took um, today here to talk about it. Thanks to you both very much.